0: Chosen leather. When I were dead, God chose the, the diaphragm, will eight. God chose the leather. When I were dead, God showed the diaphragm, will God
1: chose the leather,
0: chosen leather. God chose leopard, leather, chosen leather. God chose the leather,
1: 45
0: chosen chose when I was born. Sin. God chose to die for me. 658. God chose the mother when I was born. Sin. God chose to die for me.
1: 658.
0: God chose the mother. Chosen mother. God chose the mother. Chosen mother. God chose the mother.
1: 658.
2: everybody what's good let me know in the chat where you're watching from what time it is whether you have coffee or not what are you drinking where are you from what time is it guys this is the uh, officially the last episode on prophecy we've been here for uh seven episodes this is the seventh episode on this series called the prophetic uh we've talked about a lot of different things so if you are just now tuning in and this is the first video you're watching in this series um I'm gonna encourage you not to watch because there's a lot of stuff we've we've laid as a foundation. There's a lot of ideas that we've established in scripture that are gonna be premises for the arguments that I put forth and and the ideas that we communicate today. So pause here, go back, look at the YouTube description below. You'll see the first episode. Start watching that or watch the entire series and then meet me back here at episode seven, all right? But for those of you that are either stubborn, rebellious, or you don't care, or you've watched the whole thing and this you're up to date. Sweet, let's get to it. Okay, so this is, uh, let me know if the audio is good and, and the video is good. I'm still figuring out the technical side of things, trying to make it a little better. Um, but yeah, let's get to it. Today we're talking about finally, 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 we did it, we're here. This is what everyone's been waiting for. I, I know it, I've felt it, I've seen it in the chats, so you guys keep asking me in messages. This is more of the practical, instructive side of things. How do I discern prophecies? How do I discern uh, dreams and visions? Uh, How do I know when the Lord is speaking to me? Uh, and you don't have to be a prophet or be have the gift of prophecy to receive a prophetic word. So how do I know when someone comes up to me in church and says, I have a word for you? How do I discern through that? How do I recognize when the Lord is speaking um, in, at, at a grocery store and I'm walking around Walmart or I'm just walking down the street and I get the sense or the impression to go and talk to them and tell them this? How do I know when the Lord is speaking? And at the end of the day, I'm gonna let you know on, honestly and up front, I can't definitively tell you every single time, um, that the Lord is impressioning you or speaking to you to do something or speaking to you through a fellow brother or sister, but at least, okay, I can give you some tools in your tool belt to help you discern and recognize these things and come to a more confident conclusion. All right. So we're going to start in numbers chapter 11. Um, this is just some, somewhere I wanted to start. Okay. When we talk about prophecy, this is what came to mind for me. Um, Moses says, this to joshua the son of nun uh, because we have a couple people prophesying in the camp the spirit of god falls on them these are the 70 uh elders that are going to help moses lead the people of israel Um, the spirit of god is almost distributed or shared amongst them and two of these uh, leaders are found in the camp joshua sees them prophesying okay and he tells moses hey stop it don't let them do this moses this is weird Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Because Moses is different, he's unique. God speaks to him face to face, not in riddles, right? We've already talked about that. Oh, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Oh man, that's that's what Moses' ideal is, in his mind at least. Whether this is prophetically being declared, or this is Moses ideally, like this would be awesome. This is from his own heart. Either way he says, it, and essentially it would be amazing if all the Lord's people were prophets, all that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to camp. So if you go to Joel chapter two, if you go to Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a fire sermon. Uh, If you go to Job 33, talks about dreams, visions, prophetic words linked to who? The spirit of God. And so having the spirit of God makes these things possible, almost makes this word come to pass. and now what we get to do, okay, is we've already talked about this before, but in the New Testament specifically, okay, the question becomes, what are the purpose of New Testament prophets? And we, we briefly, or I would even say briefly, we spent a, quite a bit of time addressing this. I'm going to briefly go over it real quick, just so as we move forward, you understand the purpose of New Testament prophets, um, which I don't think is much different than the Old Testament purpose of prophets. Um, as we read this, maybe some things will change for me, but in Amos chapter three, verse seven, um, it says the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret, secret to his servant, the prophets. Um, so prophets exist to, to, uh, receive the mysteries, the secrets, the hidden things of God that need to be known and disclosed. Uh, Ezra chapter six, verse 14, God actually strengthens the hands of his people to build his house through the prophecy of Haggai and Zechariah. Hosea chapter nine, verse eight. Uh, God says the prophet is the watchman to protect and guide and warn the people of God. Uh, Hosea chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, Moses was a prophet that guarded and guided the people of Israel. Um, or the prophets do guard and guide the people like Moses physically and spiritually. Um, Job 33, verse 14 through 18. It says God actually keeps people back from sin and doing the wrong things through giving prophetic visions and dreams. Um, 1 Timothy 4, 14. It says God actually gave a gift um, to Timothy spiritually through prophecy and the laying on of hands, which sounds to me like prophets were a part of that. 1 Timothy 1.18, Timothy was actually received prophecies. There's prophecies made about Timothy, the young disciple of Paul. And Timothy is called to wage war according to the prophecies made about him. Um, So the prophecies that God gives, uh, which seem to come through prophets... Um, and if not, that's fine. That doesn't change the the conclusion we come to. But the point is that prophecy there played a role in Timothy's hands being strengthened, kind of like what we see in Ezra 6, um, Acts chapter 15. Prophets encourage and strengthen the hearts of God's people. And Ephesians chapter 4. This is where we're gonna actually open the scriptures and go to this text. Okay. I just wanted to kind of. Do a survey of that so you understand, oh, okay. So prophets play a role in convicting, strengthening, encouraging, directing, guarding, uh, revealing, um, speaking on behalf of God, whether it's nationally or congregationally or individually. Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 17, Paul says, and as we build to prophecy and apostles and prophets, this is how we get there. Ephesians 4, verse 1, he's leading up to it. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Um, So not only is this passage going to tell us how or what New Testament prophets are supposed to do and why they exist, what's their purpose, but also uh, for those who are prophets, for those who have the gift of prophecy, or when I have a prophetic word, what is the purpose of that and how do I walk through that? How do I practically, biblically, correctly uh, use the gift of prophecy or function as a prophet or deliver a prophetic word even if I don't have those things, even if I'm not a prophet? Um, And so leading up to prophets, apostles, teachers, shepherds, evangelists, Paul's letting us know there's there's a worthy way to live. Okay, live up to the calling on your life. You know what that looks like? Having humility, having gentleness, having patience, bearing with one another in love. And actually working with people patiently and suffering through what they're going through with them or, or if they you know, have, bring a wrong against you and commit an offense against you, you're willing to endure that um, and work with them, carry the burden, lighten it for them. <clears throat> Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, okay? In the bond of peace. And so we have humility, gentleness, patience. Uh, sounds a lot like Christ. We have this enduring love. Uh, we have this bond of peace that promotes unity um, and we have love there specifically Um, so all those different characteristics are going to frame up how to function as a teacher as a shepherd as an evangelist as a prophet um, or as an apostle okay Uh, all of this okay no matter what is how believers should function this is how a christian is supposed to function okay this is the calling on your life to be like Christ, to be more like him in heart and character, and to bear good fruit that honors him and aligns with his word, right? But specifically, there's almost like a higher intensity and a, and a greater degree of accountability on the roles in the church that are apostles, teachers, shepherds, evangelists, and prophets. Okay, there's one body. Now Paul's about to uh, really emphasize the unity we have as the church. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, and I'm not like reading it word for word. I'm just kind of Reading what I highlighted, because we're trying to get to verse 17, I have a lot of scripture to get through today. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father over all, through all in all. But the grace uh, that we've received to have this unity, to function and live a life worthy of the calling, to be a part of this family, that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, therefore it says he's about to quote psalm chapter sixty eight to make his point right that there's a gift that Christ gives in measure called grace, and it's going to manifest as what we see as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, okay so therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is a victory triumphant psalm okay that is actually attributed to God, but it's you know Paul says this is Christ specifically and mainly. Is Jesus here in saying that he ascended what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things so not only does Paul instruct us on how to live a life worthy of the calling he gives us a practical picture of what that looks like in the person of Christ Jesus models for us what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling he descended in humility. He condescended into our world, took on flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary, subjected himself to all the human condition has to offer, right? And went so far into our you know, reality that he actually descended into the grave, burst forth in victory. But all of that is humility. All of that is compassion and love and obedience and promoting peace and making for the peace we have with God. So Jesus gives us the perfect picture of what it looks like to function, not just as a believer, okay, but specifically for those who are more accountable, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, okay? It's to look and model your life after Jesus. He's the goal. He's the role model for how we use our gifts and how we function in the body. Okay, so whether you have the gift of prophecy, whether you're a prophet or not, whatever role you play in the body, this is not just about prophets. Whatever role you play, your goal is to be as much like Christ as possible because that makes you the as effective and successful as you possibly can be in actually doing what God's called you to. So now here comes the gifts that God gives, that Jesus distributes his grace, and it manifests as, well, he gives apostles, which lowercase a, I would say, it's more like a missionary sent out one commission to kind of establish churches, plant churches, set up uh, leadership, you know, Institute, the right things, make sure the right people are in charge. That kind of idea, not capital A apostle. Um, there is a difference. So he gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. Okay. Now here's not just the purpose for prophets, but the purpose of all this fivefold ministry. The purpose for which God gives these people and these roles and these gifts are to equip the saints. Like, do you see it? We're going to war. The the church becomes now a battleship where you're being trained, right? The church now becomes training ground to gather and, and, and love for sure, but also to watch this, get equipped for the warfare we're actually gonna walk into every single day and it doesn't stop. So, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, their main role and their job, if they want to function correctly, is to equip the body, to make the church more capable of going out, living out the gospel, living like Christ, and taking back territory from the enemy to advance the kingdom. People need to be equipped to do that. Not everyone is going to be a teacher. Not everyone's going to be a shepherd or an apostle or an evangelist or prophet, so the fivefold ministry exists primarily and mainly to lift up the body and the church, you know, uh, equip us for the battle, for the warfare we're called to. And, and frankly, Ephesians 2, that there are good works God has purposed for us to walk in. Before the foundation of the world, he designed those good works for us to walk in. We need to be equipped for that. Now, Scripture equips us for that, and <clears throat> 2 Timothy, for sure, okay, but look at this fivefold ministry, man. It's beautiful. In other words, beyond just prophets, but also prophets, if you want to function correctly, you know you're doing a good job when you're using your gifts and your position and your role and your platform. Watch, okay? To actually build up the body, to equip. You're laying your life down. That assumes humility, that assumes a desire for unity, that assumes a desire for sanctification in the church. That assumes you want believers to be mature. That assumes you care for their faith and you're walking with them and you're trying to strengthen them and lift their weak arms and make them stronger and make them more like Christ. Not that you can, but God works through our efforts. That assumes you're doing that when you're doing your job right. Because Jesus did that. He humbled himself to make us what we never could be on our own. That's part of the institution of these these roles is God gives these specific people, right, to do exactly that, to call the church higher, to bring them higher, to equip them, to train them, um, to help them, to benefit them, to promote godliness, okay? And gentleness, humility, uh, love, patience, a desire for peace and unity, like moving people the direction of unity and peace, that will always be a part of effectively using our gifts and playing our role. Okay. So equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is not just going out. This is the church functioning correctly as the body and tending to each other's needs. Because if we go out and evangelize and bring people into a dysfunctional church, what good is that? And so the work of ministry primarily is this building up the body of Christ. So not only are the apostles, prophets, the fivefold ministry, not only are the, those roles equipping the church and building the body, they're actually equipping the church to do that better themselves so that you have a, a double whamming of, of, of growth and equipping. So I'm not, I'm waiting for my shepherd, I'm waiting for my evangelist, I'm waiting for a teacher, a prophet, or an apostle to come and strengthen me. No, the church, the people of God need to be trained and equipped to effectively minister to each other and build each other up instead of relying on any one role or any five roles the church is supposed to function in tandem you know as a a unified body that gets its orders from the head Jesus so God gave these roles to equip us until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is absolute fullness. This is perfection. This is perfect unity, perfect maturity in manhood. <clears throat> so guess what? That hasn't happened yet. The church has not reached that point. Therefore, according to Paul, we still need not just shepherds, not just teachers, not just evangelists, but apostles, missionaries, lowercase a apostles, and prophets as well. In other words, I hate to say this, but if you call yourself an apostle, if you call yourself a prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and you're not building up the body, encouraging, strengthening, equipping, um, edifying, convicting. If you're not moving the church in the direction of Christ and you're not promoting sanctification and helping them become more like Jesus, you're not playing your role. I'm not going to say you're failing entirely, but if the primary purpose, God goes, look, you're a shepherd. I'm calling you to go and promote sanctification in my people, help them transform, help them grow, develop them. Not that it's on any one person. God works through their efforts and makes our efforts fruitful. But if you're not doing this and you call yourself one of these things, you're actually not operating and functioning the way you're supposed to. You're really not. Because we're supposed to be, like my role as a teacher is to look at you guys on the other side of this camera, picture your faces in my mind and go, I want them by the end of this to become more like Jesus because of what I've said and because of how God worked through what I said. I want to play a role in helping you move towards Jesus, love him more, fear God more, have a, a, a healthy reverence for God more. That's my role is that you would become more like Christ because God actually sent me to like play a role in that process. And if that's not your heart, if that's not your your desire, I don't know, man, here's the purpose of prophets, not just prophets, but this series is about prophecy and prophets. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, <clears throat> you look at the church as a whole and I'm primarily thinking of America and the Western church when you picture that and you imagine and think about what's going on, you see it in the news, you think, see it in the headlines, social media, what churches are doing when you bring it all together and you think about it, there's a lot of immaturity. There's a lot of gullibility. People are gullible. There's a lot of ignorant reception of falsehood, right? There's a lot of, I'll just believe whatever I'm told by the man of God. Um, there's a lot of deceit. There's a lot of cunning, false doctrine. There's a lot of immaturity. And if you're immature, my son's five, and he's already, like, I'm already starting to see it. He's starting to call me out on my BS. He really is. Now, when he's, like, two or three, I can get away with so much because he's easily uh, deceived. He's easily, he's, he's like, gullible, man. But the, the, the more, the smarter he gets, the more mature he gets, he's five now. It's gonna be six in March. I'm noticing, like, he really does think through what I'm saying before he believes it or before he just receives it. Maturity, part of the believer's maturity is discerning and avoiding falsehood, knowing how to how to discern between falsehood and truth, knowing being able to avoid falsehood, being able to recognize and receive truth. Immaturity is being thrown around by everything you hear and feel and see and experience and, and everything the pastor tells you that's immaturity, is you're easily tossed around. You're not standing on solid truth. So my job as a teacher, a job of a prophet, shepherd, evangelist, apostle, is to make that foundation stronger and to make help you become more mature so you're not as easily thrown around. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him, Jesus, who is the head. So Jesus is the model, right? He's, he's the exact picture of what we want to be. He's the goal of our sanctification, of our progress, of our success. I just want to be more like Him. So God has brought these roles into the church to help make that happen. Not that He needs to, He involves and includes us. From the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, okay? So I, I want to be a part of you working properly, you using your gifts properly, you functioning, to the highest capacity you can, living up to the calling on your life. I want to play a role in that. I don't want to use my platform to exalt me. I don't want to use my platform to make a name for myself. I don't want to use my platform to get followers. I want to instruct you and help you to become all that God's called you to. But guess what? That's not just on the teacher, shepherd, evangelist, prophet. That's on the body too. If you want to grow The body's supposed to build itself up in love. You got to be equipped to do that. You have to be trained to do that. Therefore, that's the role of the prophet is to come alongside shepherds, teachers, evangelists, apostles, and the rest of the body and help make that a reality. What would it look like if the church was functioning the way God had desired it to? <clears throat> like living a life worthy of the calling, like living up to the calling and living up to our fullest potential and capacity as believers. What would that look like, man? The problem is believers aren't being trained up. So you believe everything that comes your way. There's no discernment. There's no equipping. There's no recognition of falsehood. There's there's just you standing on nothing. It's so dangerous. And then these Apostles, prophets, whoever the you know these people identify themselves as, a lot of them aren't feeding the sheep. They're just not. So, here's where we get into the practical aspect of hey, if if I if let's just say you have the gift of prophecy, you believe so. It's been tested. And other people have spoken in your life. It's been confirmed. Like over time, there's this track record of yeah, I see the gift of prophecy. You know, I'm God's called me to be a prophet in the church. Okay. Let's just say that's your role and that's your gifting. There's practical guidelines to actually giving prophecy. <clears throat> now, for those of you that aren't prophets or aren't, um, uh, you don't have the gift of prophecy. We've already established that non prophets not organizations, non-profits can receive prophetic words still, can get these prophecies, dreams, and visions. So for you, this is gonna answer the question of how do I discern when something is legitimately and validly from God? How do I authenticate that? Like the way you test a hundred dollar bill and hold it up to a, you know, how do I test that? The third category of people is, hey, if someone comes to me in the name of God and says they have a word for me or they had a dream or vision about me, how do I discern through whether that is true, whether that's truly for me, um, whether what they're saying is accurate or something I should even consider, How do I weigh that the first thing I would say whether you're giving prophecy whether you're receiving a prophetic word for you or someone else or whether someone is bringing you a supposed prophetic word. I'm going to take you to first Thessalonians 5. This is the first time I brought this text into this whole series as far as I can remember. Maybe I brought it up like once but I specifically did not bring this up until now and I have a reason. 1 Thessalonians 5:19. it says, do not quench the Spirit, which is to say, hey, I'm going to oppose the work of the Spirit. I'm going to uh, try and disrupt and suppress what the Spirit of God wants to do in my life. Don't do that. <laughs> the way you do that, the way you quench the Spirit is by sinning, walking in disobedience, choosing to rebel, <clears throat> I don't know, being lazy and apathetic and complacent about your faith but specifically the way Paul's gonna say not to quench the spirit is by this. Don't despise prophecies. That's instruction number one. Number two, test everything. So there are two extremes here when it comes to prophetic words and prophets. There are those who believe everything and just stamp God's name on everything, right? And then there are those who will believe nothing and will never open themselves up to the possibility of God speaking prophetically through dreams, visions, other people, or even just directly to themselves, like by God you know, talking to them, they're closed off. So there are people who are too open and too loose, right? And then there are people, right, who are closed off and not open. Here's what I really want you to see. And then I should have let you know where we're going today. For those of you, I already see the comments. We're going to talk about the actual instructive nature. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We're going to talk about how do you test a prophetic dream, vision, word to know something's from God, right? Um, And then we're going to talk about does God ever lead through the senses or the suspicions or the feelings or emotions or the thoughts and desires of a person? Does he ever do that? Because I've heard some say, well, that's off the table. God's going to make himself known. It'll be clear. It won't won't be through some suspicion you have or some emotion you're feeling or some thought or desire or sensitivity you have. It won't be through that. God's going to speak other ways. So let's just go back to the text. Don't despise prophecies. That's a command, which is to belittle, minimize, look down on, scorn prophecy. I don't know how the cessationist works around this. I haven't Necessarily talk to a cessationist about this scripture particularly, so I dare not misrepresent them. But I just wonder how one would get around this clear command from Scripture, not to despise prophecy. Now maybe they would say, well, you have to establish something as prophecy, then you're in the danger of despising it once it's been validated clearly and definitively by God. Like despising prophecy is not being closed off to the potential of God speaking. I, uh, you know, maybe the cessationist would would say. Maybe the cessationist would say, well, once the word is validated, clearly of God, there's no denying it. Now you have the potential to despise it by rejecting what has been clearly validated by God. I would say, "Well, hold on. This involves the testing. The despising seems to come prior to the testing, not after. So test everything, right? Instead of being closed off and despising prophecy, and prophets and prophetic words and dreams and visions and shutting that off as the as no god won't speak like that anymore hold on test everything don't just receive everything blindly that's some of you like i really hate to say it but some of you do blindly receive any word like you're hungry for a word you're starving for a prophetic word you're starving to be recognized by god and to be you know focused on by him, you're, you, you desire so passionately for someone to bring you a prophetic word that's directly for you. Not congregational, not national. You're like, I want a word for me. And so the minute one comes, yeah, I mean, you're YouTubing prophecies for 2023 for the church. Prophecies for me, 2023. And you're like on YouTube looking for a word, okay? I'm warning you, don't live like that. You're already proving that you're vulnerable and you're susceptible to deception because you're you're hungry for anything that looks like a word from God. And you're likely not to test it. And you're likely to be deceived and build your life on a word God never gave because you didn't test it, you didn't discern it. You said, he said my name, he came to me in church. I'm gonna take it. I'm not even gonna test it. I'm gonna believe it. I'm gonna walk in it like it's true. You don't even bring it to the Lord in prayer. You don't seek counsel. You don't discern through it. You're just, yes, yes, words for me. Careful. Be very careful. Don't live like that. On the other side of things, don't despise prophecy. And anytime a word comes or a vision or a dream, you're like, God, there's no possibility for God to be speaking like this. Hold fast to what is good. Whether you're on the discerning end, the receiving end, or the giving end, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Do you see that? And and you wonder, what does that have to do with prophecy? Well, first of all, the kind of quenching the spirit has to do with despising prophecy or loosely receiving anything that looks like a prophetic word for me. I mean, some of you, again, are on YouTube, the first video that pops up, the first words that come out of that prophet's mouth, you're like, yes, for me, for me, for me, download data, for me, you're not testing. I have a word, John says, get out of here, John. I have a word, and you're like, yes, that's for me. Be careful, don't be so loose, don't be so open, test everything, but don't despise. So how can you suppress or quench the work of the spirit in your life? By being too loose, or being closed off and despising prophecy entirely. Well, how do I make sure I'm in the middle of that? I don't want to be closed off, but I don't want to be so loose and, and vulnerable and susceptible. Okay, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What does that have to do with prophecy? Well, you living holy, you already doing what God has revealed for you to do in scripture makes you less susceptible to being deceived or closed off. The people who are actually following the leading of the spirit and doing what God has said and actually doing what God has revealed in the specific revelation of his scriptures, you have enough commands to last you 10 hundred lifetimes. Okay. There's a lot of people who are like, ah, like I know he's told me what to do in scripture, but I'm going to kind of ignore that and run for like the more mysterious personal words. Like, God, I know you tell me to stay away from sexual immorality. But while I'm sleeping around with people, would you give me a prophetic word? Or God, I know you tell me not to covet or cheat on my taxes or not be that kind of jealous person, but I'm just going to scroll through Instagram all day and just grow in jealousy towards that person and let bitterness seep in. And would you give me a prophetic word? So what's going on here is the people who aren't holding fast to what is good already revealed in Scripture. Like the Scriptures lay out what is good. Very clearly, in the person and the character of Christ, in the work of Jesus, and the already authoritatively divine scriptures, it's laid out. You know what is good. Cling to that, essentially, abide in Christ, stay away from evil, and by doing so, you will that will pose as like an, an extra security or defense mechanism to keep you from being deceived by a word that's not from God. In other words, If you really want discernment, it's going to play into what you're already doing about the revealed word of God. For me to ignore, what, here's what you see in scripture. A lot of times, the people of Israel have decided for a long time, we're not going to do what the Lord God says. Okay, we're going to go after false gods. Okay, they're not abstaining from evil. They're not clinging to what is good. They're doing the opposite. Okay. They're clinging to what is evil. After enough time, false prophets start coming in and start tickling their ears and start telling them what they've already decided to hear. And the people of Israel are like, yes, yes, yes. And they get deceived. What set them up for deception? What set them up to be vulnerable instead of discerning? It's what they did with the revealed word of God in scripture. It's what they did with the clear revelation of God in his word. They rejected it. Okay, you're vulnerable to deception. Or okay, you're closed off to the true prophetic voices of Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Isaiah, or Amos, and you're gonna shut them off because you've decided what you want to hear. And some of you have done that. Let's Let's just take off our prophetic hat for a minute and let me just let you know that there are some, I, I know, I've come across them, I've worked with them, I've served them, I have I know that there are people in the church who are doing this. And you're hungry for a word from God. You just You're obsessed with these personal revelations and just tell me more. You're not doing anything with what you already know. And so you're obsessed with the unknown. You're overly concerned with the mysteries and the secrets of God and the numerology and how does it parallel to the hebrew you're you're sitting on a bunch of knowledge and wisdom that you've done nothing with and i'm just saying the fact that you are unfaithful with what god's already revealed tells me that you you're probably not gonna do much with another word he gives. So either he's not gonna give you any more because you haven't done anything with what he's given you, or there's gonna be more vulnerability to deception. Don't say I didn't warn you, okay? When it comes to um, prophecy, okay? Revelation 19, nine through 10 gives us something uh, very interesting. The angel says to John, hey, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's just highlight that. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers. So whatever he's about to say is in the context of don't bow down to me. Bow down to the true living God. It's in the context of worshiping the wrong thing. He goes, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. There's a testimony about Christ. There's a clear revelation of who he is, what he's done, and eyewitness testimony from the apostles, from the crowds. The scriptures are the compilation of that. We, We have witness, eyewitness testimony of Christ. What is the testimony? That the Messiah came that he lived, that he died, he was buried, and he resurrected, he ascended. That's the testimony. It's the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the true and only Messiah, sent from God, the eternal word emanating from the Father. He's it. So there's the testimony. And he says, worship God, worship God. So the testimony about Jesus, the true words of God, which do involve the future marriage supper of the Lamb, These seem to all uh, be in the surrounding context of worshiping God in, in spirit and truth, like what we see in John 4. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, to be very honest and straightforward, I'm not entirely sure what he specifically means. I have a couple ideas that I don't think are wrong, but maybe it's not the full picture. Okay. So let me, let me propose one idea, the true words of God, which Jesus is the true word of God. That's also part of the testimony that he is the perfect full revelation of the father to humanity. He is that you don't get much better than God putting on human flesh coming into our world. The eternal word emanating from the father, he's it. So the word of God, Jesus is the truth and what John is recording, right? is a, is aligned with Jesus, the, his character, his work, it doesn't contradict, okay? So the testimony of Jesus is clear in scripture, That w- what you might call sound doctrine, okay? In other words, that will always be the foundation of any prophecy that's given, is that it's built on the testimony of Jesus. So it says here that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, the spirit... Um, Let's actually look up the word real quick. Let's do this real time. Because I didn't think to to actually look this up. Um, And I really want to now. It's Revelation 19. 10. Okay. This might help us. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Or testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Numa. Wind, breath, spirit. So I figured it's too general. Okay, here's what I'm comfortable with saying. According to the Greek, there's so many variations, even within the breath, wind, spirit idea that we see in, in the Torah. Um, the guiding force, okay? The guiding force of prophecy um, seems to be the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the heart from which true f- prophecy flows from, is a heart that is built and loves the testimony of Christ, the gospel of who He is, the Word of God unveiled. You know, our true prophets, true prophecy, will be the overflow, okay, of um, being built on the foundation of Jesus' testimony. Another thing, possibly, is Second Corinthians 1.20. okay. In other words, here comes some criteria. Here's a way to to measure true prophecy or true prophets. Are they standing on the testimony, the true eyewitness testimony of Jesus? Is it consistent with Scripture? Is it aligned with um, what we see revealed in Scripture about Christ and what He's done? Is there any contradiction in the between the prophecy and the testimony of Jesus? If so, it's probably not from God. It's probably not something you should pay attention to. So. So John is giving, it uh, seems to be, the angel's giving John some criteria to give the church to measure and discern through true prophecy. That the spirit of prophecy, the guiding force of that, what it stems from, what prophecy stems from, is the testimony of Christ. That's like the control center. Second um, Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. All the prophecies of scripture, all the promises of God, everything that we see prophesied in the Old Testament finds its substance and fulfillment in Jesus himself. He's the pinnacle of that. Like he's the culmination of every prophecy and promise God makes. He brings purpose and he brings substance and he accomplishes what is necessary for those promises and those prophecies to actually be valid. He's like the means through which prophecy and promises um, are, like uh, I guess, solidified and established. He is that. So that will always be part of discerning and receiving and giving prophecy. Is what I'm giving, is what I'm receiving, is what I'm hearing consistent with the revealed testimony of Jesus in the gospel? Is it coming from a heart that loves, treasures, values, and exalts Jesus and his testimony? That's a good, helpful filter, all right? Um, Romans chapter 12, verse three through six, it's going to sound a lot like Ephesians 4 because it's supposed to. And it's also going to sound a lot like um, 1 Corinthians 13 because it's supposed to. <laughs> all right? And just so you know, Romans 12, verse three through six, it says, by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to. Sounds like Ephesians 4. Humility. Choosing to lay down your life and assume the lower position for someone else's benefit. Prophecy will always come from that heart. A desire to benefit and out of concern for an individual or a nation or a congregation or a community. There are communal words. There's national words. There's individual, personal words, right? Therefore... um, um there's a way we ought to think as believers, but even like more seriously, for those who give prophecy or are prophets or receive prophetic words to give um is it's we'll keep reading because a thought comes to mind, but I want to be careful to think with sober judgment, okay, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned, now he's about to go into the gifts. So Paul essentially in Romans 6 tells us, or 12, tells us the kind of heart and the kind of character that should accompany every gift. Or every time we we use a gift, or function as the role we play in the body. How does that look? What does that look like? Well, it's gonna look like having sober judgment. It's gonna look like thinking of ourselves appropriately and having an accurate view of who we are in light of Jesus. It's going to look like assuming a lower, humble position for the benefit of another. It's going to look like caring and concern, being concerned for another and actually doing something that is out of a desire to benefit them and help them. As in one body, we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, right? So we, even though many, are one body in Christ individually, we're members of another. So prophets aren't on their own. They're not cut off from the body. They're not isolated. They're not running their own lone wolf show. Um, Prophets are just as much connected to the body as any other believer. You're not, you're not your own. You're not a savage. You're not like you don't get get away with living your own isolated Christianity because I'm a prophet and I have the gift of prophecy. The very fact that you think like that already poses a red flag for me because Paul's going to frame up the gifts we have that differ like this. Hey, don't forget, we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We're a part of a global, timeless family. And you actually play a role in like helping that body function more appropriately and better. You play a role in that. Now, here's the ways you might do that. Having gifts that differ, you might have prophecy. Let's use our gifts. So when it comes to prophecy or being a prophet, guess what? Use your gift in proportion to our faith. If you have prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. If service, well, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, right? The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Whoa. Why isn't prophecy a part of a list of gifts that have faded if prophecy has indeed faded out of the equation? Like if God's done with prophecy, if it's no longer active, why would Paul lump prophecy into a list of gifts that are just as much in existence as, as prophecy still is? Because that's the argument. People go, well, prophecy's done. Yep. God just kind of shut it off. We got the word. And the problem with that is, well, here's another thing. Um, Paul should have listed prophecy among like the sign gifts, if there's even that category, or those gifts that are going to perish because, hey, look, there's confusion going on here. Paul, you you should distinguish. If in fact some gifts are going to fade with the completion of the canon of Scripture and some gifts will remain, you should make a distinction. Paul doesn't. Paul doesn't. So the point here is, look, whatever gift you have, whatever role you play, humility will accompany it. If there's ever pride, if there's ever self exaltation, if there's ever a desire to to promote myself and 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 have my ego inflated, if there's ever a desire for you to think much of me and I'm using my gifts to build my kingdom and my reputation and my name and my following, that's already a red flag for me that I probably shouldn't listen to what you're saying. Not ever, but at least in that moment as you're giving it, if that's the kind of heart and that's the kind of ego and that's the kind of motivation behind it, I'm probably not going to listen to what you're saying. And it can come through. Sometimes it's not detectable. I get that. Um, but the point is true prophecy, true gifts in general. Like if you're going to function correctly, it's going to look like humility, benefiting the body, functioning alongside other believers and not cut off from them. It's gonna be actually promoting the, the body and benefiting the body entirely, right? Um, so, that's just a word of caution for those of you. That plays a role in like giving a word for someone. Um, potentially, there's biblical precedence to say, part of discerning a word we're receiving, or discerning whether I should give a word or whether I'm even receiving a word from God to give to someone in a dream or vision. Part of that process involves evaluating my own heart and my motives and my intentions and the end goal of that word and what that would produce, how that would affect the body. Is it empty? Is it for nothing? Does it amount to nothing? Is it is it hollow? Is it a, you know, or does it actually profit people? And am I giving it from a heart of humility and assuming a lower position because I want to benefit another and lift them higher than me. that that I'm not saying that, def, that guarantees the word is from God. Or that guarantees you should give it or you really heard from God. But that does play a role in the heart evaluation. It does. Now, we get to go to 1 Corinthians 14. Because again, these are the practical instructions, biblically, for how to... use Your gift of prophecy, or how to function as a prophet, or how to discern uh, a prophetic word from a person, or in a dream or a vision, or you believe God is speaking to you, how to discern these things. Um, So, 1 Corinthians 14. I was going to start with chapter 12, but I'm going to work my my way backwards because chapter 14 is so practical. It's just, it's too practical. All right. So, 1 Corinthians 14, I'm going to stop at each verse. I have notes that I want to share that are more like just basic instructions. So I would encourage you to write this down. And if you're a part of our Patreon community and you give through Patreon, uh, you'll get access to all these notes. <coughs> all seven episodes of this series, uh, it's, it's a lot of notes. Like it's probably like around 40 to 50 pages of notes um, in a Word document. So if you want these, you know, if you're in the Patreon community, you get them as a thank you for supporting us monthly. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, it says, pursue love. That will always be the correct heart posture of a correct prophecy or a true prophet who's speaking on behalf of God. And this doesn't just affect prophecy. This is teaching. This is speaking in tongues. This is functioning as as a lowercase apostle missionary. This is building churches. This is starting organizations. This is starting digital ministries i mean the heart behind anything that we do as believers if we're going to function properly what you're doing is you're going to pursue love love is ultimate in what i'm doing <clears throat> and i sometimes miss that when i teach it's more about getting my notes across it's more about saying everything i wanted to say it's more about like convicting people and like making them feel bad <laughs> but then the like i i'm, I'm more often praying like lord I just pray that you would help me to have a heart that loves the person I'm speaking to. Like, I just want everything I do and say to be out of love for them. I I can't develop that. I can't fake it. Would you give that to me? So that I know for sure what I'm doing is out of love and pursuing love. So pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. All right. especially that you may, what? Prophesy. So, instruction number one, 1 Corinthians 14, verse one. This is not given, well, this is given to a a new community, a New Testament church prior to the establishment of the canon of scripture, so it doesn't apply to us anymore. Weird logic. Nonetheless, verse one says, especially that you may prophesy, you should desire that alongside the spiritual gifts. So guess what? Pursue prophecy like earnestly desire and go after prophecy. It's actually encouraged. Um, I don't believe this is just for those who are already gifted. I don't believe this is for those who have the ability to prophesy and are functioning as prophets already. Of course, they can grow in that. We've talked about that. This seems to be more for just the community at Corinth in general, which affects the rest of the global church. Like this letter gets passed around and it becomes for the New Testament church in general. But the encouragement from Paul is this, desire the spiritual gifts. So, especially that you may prophesy. In chapter 12, Paul's already said that the spirit distributes how he wills and what he wills. Because the gifts we have, whatever they are, don't seem to be all that we can have. In other words, if I, let's just say right now, uh, I'm a new believer and I recognize for sure I have the gift of encouragement, And I have the gift of, um, I don't know, mercy or hospitality. And I'm like, oh man, those are the only gifts I have. Well, not necessarily. Either there are some gifts you haven't discovered um, that are going to become more prevalent as you follow Jesus. It's going to become more clear. Um, But also, it seems to be that God can and often will actually distribute gifts throughout the person's life. Um, So in other words... I don't believe that the gifts I have now are the only gifts God's going to give. Chapter 12 tells us the Spirit of God distributes to whom He wills, how He wills, and there's no time restriction around that. There's no conditions around that to say, well, like, well, like only up to a point, only this many gifts, or only like these kinds. And you can take it away. There's no conditions surrounding that statement. So I believe that 1 Corinthians 14 is giving. Any believer permission, not absolute guarantee, but permission to desire the spiritual gifts, whatever you, you long for and believe will be an asset to your life and help you function in your calling and help you play your role. Like, man, guess what? You can desire gifts that you don't have. Here's what I will say, though. <clears throat> he does specify prophecy. He'll explain why. But for now, know this. Just because you desire it doesn't mean God will absolutely give it to you okay it's not guaranteed that God is going to give you the gift you desire so every desire I have doesn't necessitate God giving it to me or fulfilling that desire some desires I have to suppress and ignore and just move on from like sinful desires right or sinful temptations or the desire for a a life that God has not called me to it's not bad but it's not ideal so I think the same thing is true of gifts Desire spiritual gifts. That's okay. Like God is giving you permission through Paul to actually desire for the gift of prophecy to prophesy. Number one, it's not a bad thing. It's bad when you make that ultimate. It's bad when you think that's everything. It's bad when you start accusing God for not giving you it quicker or or at all. It's bad when that replaces God in your life and you love prophecy more than God, which I don't know how a believer could even get there in the first place, but maybe it's possible. Um, for one who speaks, oh my gosh. That's what happens when you double click. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. So, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now this comes right on the heels of saying, desire prophecy, desire the spiritual gifts, but particularly prophecy, because this seems to be a church that's all about the gift of tongues mainly, like just loose, loose cannons, no one's able to interpret, no one's able to discern, it's all unintelligible, it amounts to nothing, everyone's, oh. and so Paul's addressing this and saying, well, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Uh, for no one understands him that that before the interpretation of course he utters mysteries in the spirit okay so tongues is uttering mysteries in the spirit contrasted with prophecy prophecy is revealing mysteries in the spirit because a tongue is cloaked right it's an idea that's withheld it's not known it's not clarified or understood by the people around you Uh, neither does the speaker understand like the the one who's praying in a tongue to God, like he doesn't even understand. So how could the people understand? Well, possibly if there's an interpreter, but only if there's an interpreter, that mystery is revealed. Until an interpretation comes, it's a concealed mystery. He's uttering mysteries he doesn't understand and no one else does. Prophecy though, is actually intelligible. Prophecy is revealing mysteries. Instead of you know saying them in a way that no one can recognize, prophecy is revealing mysteries. And that's what I want to clarify. Okay. I'm getting hot. I'm gonna take out my sweatshirt is that prophecy is not this unintelligible, unknown, undiscernible thing. We talked about like to what degree it's discernible and what that even means and how often God will even take the time to give an interpretation later or bring another person to supply the interpretation or meaning. We've talked about that. Um, But let's go on verse three. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. So far, what we've seen in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians 4 is every gift, but particularly prophecy in this series, every gift is designed to build and encourage and strengthen and fortify and edify and even correct and convict. That was the purposes of any gift is that it would actually strengthen the body. Sometimes that comes through conviction. Sometimes that comes through correction, okay? But know this, I won't say this is a silver bullet in the whole discerning argument, but it's helpful to know that part of discerning prophecy, like whether you're really hearing from God or whether you should give a word or, or whether someone coming to you is truly speaking a word that's accurate, one of the things that plays a role in our discerning process is does that word actually strengthen? Is the result of that word encouraging and strengthening the body, fortifying the body? Like, even if it's just me, like if I'm stronger, then I can be stronger to help the body become stronger. So, that can also be a part of the filtering process. Is this word strengthening, upbuilding, fortifying, edifying? The body or does it amount to nothing is it empty is it just vain and it means nothing and even if it means something there's no clear action to take that actually benefits someone you know so sometimes people give i wrote it down like this um oh lord we're nowhere near getting finished (laughs) i will say this vague words amount to nothing in scripture, I have not come across a vague word that's general enough to apply to anyone in any way they want, that gives no clear direction. I don't see that in scripture. A, prophet, a true prophetic word, a prophecy, a dream or vision is gonna be specific, direct, clear action. Um, in other words, there's something, it means something specific. So I can do something specific. Does that make sense? And if that's not in a prophecy you're receiving or in a prophecy that's being given to you, possibly that's not from God. Otherwise, God would be directing you to do something. Um, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, okay? But the one who prophesies builds up the church. This is not Paul, like, bragging on tongues. He's just distinguishing and going, well, prophecy's better. He'll say that clearly. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Whoa, Paul, can you do that? Like, can you put different gifts on different levels? Well, when it comes to strengthening and edifying the church, he can. He can. It doesn't mean they're equally or they're, they're less or more valuable or they're less or more from God. It means when it comes to building the church, one is more helpful. And prophecy is more helpful. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. I didn't say it. Paul did. Unless someone interprets. Right. Once there's an interpretation for a tongue, it's helpful. So the church may be what built up. So guess what? Prophecy is more helpful than an untranslated tongue. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation, or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching? Right. the 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 end goal of using a gift is to benefit someone. Surprise. The end goal of your generosity or hospitality or teaching or apostolic gift to, to be sent out and establish churches and start things and get them off the ground, your gift, the end goal of that is to benefit someone. So if you're not using your gift to do that, I hate to say it, you're failing. <laughs> like, there's no other way around it. I'm not going like, to beat around the bush and be like, well, you know. no, if the gift does not benefit anyone, it's a failed use doesn't mean you can't change doesn't mean you can't fix it right right now you can but i'm saying if you've been using gifts for any other purpose to use something against its intended purpose is to fail in using that thing it's just how it works so <clears throat> Paul says look if i bring a revelation if i bring a uh, or knowledge or prophecy or a teaching um, how will i benefit you Um, unless I you know, bring these things, now prophecy and revelation here are the same thing. I was reading this and I was like, why, why are these separated? Well, in First Corinthians 12, he gives words of he says uh, in the, in the list of gifts, there's words of knowledge, there's words of wisdom, and there's prophecy. Now, of course, teaching is also a gift. Teaching teacher is a role, but specifically words of knowledge here, and prophecy um, I believe is the revelation because if you scroll down. If you go down to verse uh, 26, we'll get there. Uh, He talks about um, a lesson, that's a teacher, an interpretation, that's a tongue, a hymn, that can often be prophetic. But the revelation specifically is the prophecy. Prophecy is revealing in nature. Um, And I think we'll go up. Don't look at the screen. You'll get sick. Let's just go on. I'll I'll kind of validate that point a little more because I don't think I've necessarily proven it well um he goes on talking about how tongues like it's just like indistinct instruments unhelpful noise so with yourselves since you're eager for manifestations of the spirit strive to excel in building up the church that's the point is your gift prophecy or is your role as a prophet or the vision or dream or that you received is it ultimately going to build up the church Or is it going to build up your fame, your influence, your name, your platform, your, you know, your kingdom? That doesn't mean like none of those things will happen. But if that's the only thing that happens, if that's the main purpose of what you're doing, I'd back off a little bit. And I wouldn't really call that a word from God because the word that God gives will always build and strengthen, edify. And guess what? Prophecy is actually a manifestation of the spirit to build the church. It's a, re, it's a way that the spirit of God reveals himself is through the gifts he gives to his people. So therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Uh, what am I to do? He'll go on to talk about like what to do with tongues, but this, that's not the subject for today. So nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. That can be teaching, that could be prophecy, that could be words of knowledge, words of wisdom, in order to instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so verse 19 tells us prophecy is instructing. Prophecy is actually giving direction or giving clarity on what to do. It's instructive, it's instructive. Um, Sometimes in scripture, the instruction comes just through the prophet and the word of God comes to him. Others, other times, like a king will come to a prophet and go, hey, uh, what do I do here? And the prophet prays and he gets a word. Here's the instruction, okay? So again, if if prophecy is not instructive, if it's not practical, if it's not beneficial, if it doesn't build the church, you start to really be able to filter out a lot of words that people are giving for 2023. Rather, oh, look at these words we have. Go on YouTube, search it, you'll find it, you'll find it. But if a word is not practical or helpful or directive or instructive, um, you just start to wonder what does it amount to? God won't speak something uh, that ultimately, if it's received, will do nothing, right? People can reject his word. People can ignore it. People can like try and avoid it and get rid of it. But when God sends a word, it's always with a purpose. It will do something. And if the people re- reject it, well, that word will be a judgment against them, right? Or if they're unbelievers, of course, they reject the gospel or something like that. But if a word is like, just like, hey, you know, um, I don't know. The word of God is going to be instructive. That's what's helpful for me in evaluating prophecy. Okay. Uh, Verse twenty. And again, these aren't. You don't take these filters on their own and go. Well, if a if a prophetic word that I'm hearing from my grandma, uh, she said, I got a word for you. If it if it's instructive, then boom, it's a word of God. No, you bring all these things together. It's not just going to be instructive. It's also going to be helpful. It's also going to benefit the body. It's Also going to be laid on the foundation of the testimony of Christ. All these different things. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. So here's a call for believers to grow up. Not physically in stature, which would be great. I wish I could keep growing. But maturity-wise, in your thinking. Maturity is not about, I don't know. Maturity is about thinking. That's what I'll say. Okay, maturity is about your mentality. Um, In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people? And he'll go on to say, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, right? Well, prophecy is a sign, not for believers, but for, not for unbelievers, but for believers. And so prophecy is for believers, but also convinces unbelievers as well, like we're about to see. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or believers enter, won't they say you guys are out of your minds? Isn't that what happened in Acts chapter two? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted. There's there's a, there's a convicting role to prophecy, even if the word you give is not specifically convicting in nature, right? Like if someone stands from a pulpit, or let's just say they get on stage and they're like, I have a word for the congregation, and it's so clear, it's so accurate, it's so practical, it's so like. Uh, speaking to the situation of the church and the unbeliever's aware of that and going, wow, this this prophet's nailing it. Like they're calling out specific details. There is a conviction that comes with that. So he's convicted by all and he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, right? So what does prophecy do? Prophecy uh, is revealing. It unveils mysteries, secrets of a person's heart. So this is not just about, well, God's general plan of redemption and salvation in the Old Testament. Those concealed, right? The prophets weren't, were not only prophesying in part. This is also like the secrets of a person's heart. When Jesus is able to like look straight through to the heart of a person and know what they're thinking in their mind, right? I wouldn't say that was a prophetic word. I'd say that Jesus is just like awesome. <laughs> He's awesome. He is every gift. So the secret of his heart is disclosed and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare, God is really among you. Okay, so um, verse 25 and 24 tell us prophecy can convict and disclose, it will disclose secrets or reveal mysteries. Okay? That's what prophecy does. If prophecy is about something that's already known in terms of like there's nothing, there's no new direction or there's no new details or there's no new awareness or no new understanding, then it's like, well, you just made an observation, not a prophecy. Um you know, you're going to open a door today. Well, that's how I enter into rooms. That's how I go into buildings. It's how I leave buildings. I open doors. Thanks for the prophetic word. It's an observation. Okay, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Right. So the lesson is for a teacher. Because uh, I should have said this earlier, but... This is also part of my argument where people go, well, teaching is modern day prophecy. Ah, nope. 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 Cause people are bringing revelations, which is revealing that can be a word of wisdom um, or words of knowledge, or they're bringing a prophecy or they're bringing a teaching, a lesson. Prophecy and teaching can have some crossover but they're still distinct from each other. Same right here. Someone's bringing a revelation or a lesson. Okay, that doesn't mean prophecy will never be instructive. We already talk, said it, it is. Like there can be a lesson within a prophecy, but teachers primarily bring lessons and like you know teach information, relay it, bring understanding. The revelation that accompanies a prophecy is more specifically like what is unknown, what is secret, what is hidden revealing mysteries if any speak in a tongue let there be only two or at most three each in turn let someone interpret but if there's no one to interpret shh, just talk to god let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said so this is specifically when it comes to giving prophecy in a in a communal congregational setting so when you as a church come together and you're going how do we use the gifts though a lot of churches nowadays especially because they're cessationists don't make room and make time in the actual service for prophecy to be had or to be shared or to be experienced Um, so i think there actually needs to be a like biblically there should be a space set aside for those who are genuinely validated as prophets among a community to share a prophetic word if they have it Um, i think that would be wise you're not you don't let anyone come up but Specifically, 1 Corinthians 14. I should have said this up front. It's more addressing the communal setting. When a church gathers uh, in a church building or they come together in a fellowship, how does prophecy function? Well, let two or three prophets speak. Um, prophecy is done in decency and in order. Not It's not wild or uncontrolled. Thus saith the Lord, I can't hold it back. You can. You can hold it back, Nancy. So, um, prophecy is part of the order of service. It's not the whole service, it's not the whole thing, it's not the whole church gathering, it's part of it. The problem is, I've been in some hyper charismatic services where prophecy is everything, and they spend two hours just going, anyone have a word? No, and they'll sit there until someone comes up to the mic. I don't know, I heard fuzzy acorns, and they're like, hmm, yes. I don't think that should be the whole service. I think it should be part of the service, not the fuzzy acorns part, but the the, the part of, hey, you know, let's make room for at least two or three prophets to speak, you know? And then guess what? Prophecy's done in order. Uh, The word of God comes in a way where it can be, you know, the prophet can control them sharing it. They can show self-control. Just because I have a word from God doesn't mean it has to come out now. You can wait you can show some patience and you can exercise self-control and wait till it's your turn. But also, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Okay, so in other words, if I receive something, if I'm a prophet in the church and I receive confirmation or details or helpful, uh, another dimension to what this prophet's saying, right? I go, hey, actually, let me clarify before you move on, and that's not me speaking out of turn, that's actually necessary so that the full scope of that word can be understood. And it seems as though when prophecy is done in decency and in order, it's not wild, it's not uncontrolled, the word of the Lord comes and the prophecy is actually weighed. In other words, it's being tested real time. Like other prophets are actually, not only other prophets, but specifically and especially other prophets who are trusted voices in a community? They're actually testing that prophetic word. They're actually like, um, they're weighing what's being said. So just because I say, Ah, I'm a prophet, I'm a trusted source here. Thus saith the Lord, Nancy. It's always Nancy. I need a thousand bucks. God said to give it to me. You know, other prophets stand up and go, Ah, God didn't say that. So there's there's that extra filter and that extra protection. Um, so. Yeah, prophecies weighed. It's it's done one by one, okay? You can all prophesy one by one. So two or three prophets are speaking. It seems like that's a healthy number. Hey, let's have two or three prophets share. The other prophets and the rest of the church also seems to be weighing and discerning and testing. And if someone gets clarification, you know, they'll go, hey, can I, you know, share? Uh, you can all prophesy one by one. <clears throat> so... There should be order. Um, And let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Remember? Prophecy is not, again, not just uh, relaying the scriptures and teaching from the scriptures. That's its own gift, teaching. And prophets will often, they can cross over for sure. Like teaching can be prophetic. It's prophetic when it's declared from the word of God. Uh, Prophecy, uh, can be instructive in teaching in nature, right? Um, but teaching itself is not prophecy uh, in Scripture. Like the prophecy here is unveiling and revealing uh, secrets or mysteries about congregation, persons' life, um, nations, what's going on behind the scenes. Agabus standing up. There's going to be a famine, that kind of thing. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, prophets can control themselves, and prophecy will encourage, instruct and convict the fellowship. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Everyone always takes this out of context, man. Everyone. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent. I've already actually done a message on this. I'll probably link it in the description below. Um, I've explained my view on this. Uh, I believe it's correct. I'm open to being wrong, but I've talked about the women keeping silent and what I believe that means. You can watch that video in my first Corinthians series on YouTube. Um, or I'll link it in the description below. Uh, They're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it's reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or he's spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of God. If anyone doesn't recognize this, okay, he's not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. There it is again. Paul says it twice. And don't forbid speaking in tongues because the Corinthians might overcorrect and be like, well, we've been so loose with tongues. Let's shut it down. Paul's going, well, don't shut it down. Just do what's most profitable to the church and spend the most of your time doing what is most helpful. And that's prophecy. And then you have teachers and then you have, uh, you know, um, the lesson or the hymn or the instructive revelation or the word of wisdom. Okay? Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So guess what? Um, true prophecy always acknowledges Apostolic authority and writings in other words You can discern through a real prophecy or receiving or someone's giving you or a dream or a vision you're having by going hmm does this contradict the scriptures does this contradict the New Testament apostolic writings if so it's a no it's not from God um, also we're told to earnestly desire to go after to pursue prophecy not like your whole life is dedicated to that but we all have a hierarchy of pursuits in our life none of us are pursuing only one thing where everyone's pursuing a main thing and that will often dictate the smaller things they're pursuing but it seems as though prophecy should be a part of our pursuing the Lord and pursuing a life that honors him. So listen, it's okay to pray. God, would you, I, I pray this all the time. Like here's a little, you know, glimpse into my prayer time. I, I will pray God make me uh cause I, I, I have a sense and a belief that God has already stirred this up. So this I'm more praying from evidence and observation. Not everyone, not everyone will be doing this, but I pray, Lord, make me a, a prophet to the nations. Would you help give me the gift of prophecy? Um, would you help me to prophesy? I want that, I want to be helpful. Um, and so it's fine to pray for that. God answers as he wills. It's not a failure if he doesn't. It's not a failure if he says no. It's not a failure if he says not yet, okay? So going back to chapter 13, um, love is ultimate, okay? That's that's the ultimate thing that needs to be understood. Um, is that if you're giving a revelation or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or a teaching or a lesson or a hymn, it's all supposed to be from a place of love, desiring to build a church, benefit people, exalt the name of God, it's aligned with scripture, Um, it's not vague, it's clear, it's instructive, there's direction, it promotes worship. All those things are kind of falling under this category of love, love. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, when Paul's going to talk about when the perfect comes, he's only going to talk about prophecy and knowledge. Those seem to be the main points of focus in chapter 13. They're not the only gifts. They're just uh, the main things that are worth addressing when it comes to Jesus coming back and when the perfect comes. I've already explained this in episode two. So... Paul's gonna love, even if I have all knowledge, even if I can prophesy and understand all mysteries, which again, validates the fact that I believe prophecy is about the mysteries, the secret things, the hidden things that get disclosed. If I have all faith to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, I have not love, I gain nothing, okay? Love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast. So guess what? True prophecy, when you're receiving a word from from the Lord, or you have a vision or, or dream, and you're discerning that, or someone comes and goes, I have a word for you, part of the discerning process is measuring that, not just the delivery, but the word against this understanding of love. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Um, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, right? Love endures. Love believes all things. I think assumes the best. Love hopes all things and endures all things. So this description of love gives us the, a clear, uh, clear instruction on how to deliver prophetic words and how to discern prophetic words and how to recognize this is part of the filters, this is part of the discerning process. Is does is this word violating in any way my understanding of love? God is love. Another thing that's helpful, and again, prophecies will pass away. Eventually, love never ends. Okay. And prophecy is done in part. But when we see Jesus, guess what? It'll be we won't need prophecy or that kind of knowledge anymore. Now, you go back to verse chapter twelve. Uh before I do, if you go to Philippians chapter four. Not only is there a standard of love, right? Not only is Jesus the model for how we live life, but if uh, Philippians 4 tells us what is worth thinking about, the kinds of thoughts and desires that are worth entertaining. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. We should think about those things, right? So we have a standard for our thought life. We have a standard for love. Galatians 5 presents us with the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, kindness, fruitfulness, gent- or not fruitfulness, <laughs> the other ones. Okay, so the point is, these almost become helpful measuring sticks for discerning through prophetic words. Does this prophetic word or dream or vision in any way cause me to or encourage me to violate the standard of love in 1 Corinthians 13? Does this vision at all contradict my understanding of what what kind of thoughts are worth entertaining and what god wants me to think about Um, does this promote the fruits of the spirit or does it contradict the fruits of the spirit these are all helpful things in evaluating and discerning okay because everyone goes well measure it against scripture well scripture doesn't always clearly and directly speak to my personal situation about should i move to florida there's general wisdom to pull there's principles i can implement right But I'm not going to turn to Amos 9 and it's going to be like, Thus saith the Lord, Jason John Camacho in California in 2021 moved to Florida. It's not in there. It's not in there. So how do you discern through these things? Um, Well, Philippians, standard of love, Galatians, fruits of the spirit. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Uh, Therefore, I want you to understand, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. I mean, that's a very clear indication the Word is not from God. And no one says Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so, someone's view and, I I guess, understanding of who Jesus is, is a very helpful filter. Like when you're like, should I listen to them? Or this dream or vision I have, is that really from God? Or this sense... I don't know. I believe the Lord is speaking to me. Well, do any of those things push against who Jesus really is? Do they cause you to think less of him? Do they cause you to think something other than him? Do they promote a wrong idea of Christ? I don't know. Just to help. Another thing to consider. Uh, He says there's varieties of gifts, same spirit, varieties of service, same Lord, uh, varieties of activities, same God who empowers them all. Right? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So whether it's prophecy or words of wisdom or uttering knowledge uh, or teaching, right? I think um, utterance of wisdom can actually be matched up with teaching. So right here we have the kind of trifecta thing. I've always wondered like, what's utterance of wisdom? What's word of knowledge and what's prophecy? Well, prophecy seems to be that revelation, that disclosing the secret hidden things. The words of wisdom thing, Good morning, Leandra, good to see you. The utterance of wisdom thing seems to be more connected to teaching. Um, The knowledge here, which if you go to chapter 14, close your eyes, you'll get dizzy. Um, The knowledge is a word of knowledge itself, prophecy, and then teaching. I believe the word of wisdom is that, that's what teaching is, because the revelation is not that. So prophecy and revelation, I believe, are the same thing. Teaching is the word of wisdom, and then knowledge is its own, the words of wisdom. Um, Maybe eventually we'll talk about that, but I got to keep going. To one is given the utterance of wisdom, knowledge, uh, faith, healing, prophecy, miracles, discerning spirits, tongues, interpretation, all these, watch this, all these are empowered by the one and same spirit who apportions to each one as he wills. So when it comes to prophecy, the reason you can pray for prophecy and desire for that, and while you're desiring other gifts, right? Evaluate your heart and your reasoning behind it, but this also kind of supports the idea that it is good to desire for gifts that are most gonna benefit the body, like prophecy, because God apportions how he wills. The spirit of God that activates these gifts and empowers these gifts and makes them effective he decides who gets them and when and so we shouldn't put unnecessary biblical limitations on well if you have this gift you can't have another Who, who's to say you can't get another gift later on i just don't know where you would find anything to support that idea uh he'll go on to talk about the body how we each play our role and then here's kind of where we'll end with this specific topic you are the body of christ individually members of it and god has appointed in the church first apostles then prophets, then teachers, then miracles. So here's another clear distinction between prophets and teachers. Then miracles, then healing, helping, administrating, tongues. Now watch, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? do, Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The answer seems to be a resounding no. Otherwise, you don't have the variation in the body. You don't have those distinguishing markers between parts and roles. If everyone does the same thing, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And he'll go on to talk about love. I'll show you a more excellent way. So before he gets to what to desire in chapter 14, chapter 13 is, hey, love. That's most excellent. That's way better than any gift, is pursue love. And along the way, it's okay to pursue other gifts. But also, understand this, not everyone's going to be a prophet, teacher, apostle, evangelist. Not everyone, okay? So this kind of goes back to Moses' prophecy. Not prophecy, but like the what he desires. Is that all, oh, would that all of God's people be prophets. Um, doesn't seem to be answered, you know. So, um, we're going to get more specific. That was more of like the instruction on how to give or deliver prophetic words but also within that was a kind of discerning okay um, I'm gonna take a two-second break and then when we come back we're gonna talk about how to actually test not definitively or in a guaranteed on way but to how to start testing uh, visions dreams and prophetic words that you believe you're receiving from God not a person Right, not another person coming into your life, but you believe God is speaking to you in that way. How do you discern that? We're gonna continue that conversation when we come back from my potty break, All Right.
0: God chose a leper. when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me, womb five eight. God chose a when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me, womb five
1: eight
0: chosen lover, chosen lover God chosen lover, chosen lover God chosen lover w 5
1: 8 God chosen lover,
0: when I will dead then God chose to die for me One, 5 8 God chosen lover, when God chose the diaper. Boom vibe. God chosen the lover. Chosen lover God chosen the Chosen lover God chosen the
1: leper. Boom,
2: boom Alright, no need to drag that out. Um where was I okay we already talked about receiving a supposed prophetic word from a person who claims to have seen a vision or dream or has a word for you um, but what about when it's personal right it's a dream vision you have a sense the spirit is telling you to do something like a word is coming to you um, um, and where was I going with that what I'm about to share also does apply to like discerning words from people, but it's more about like me processing and discerning uh, through something that I believe God is telling me personally. Uh, Maybe it's congregational, maybe it's national maybe. but how do I discern through that? Um, And scripture is the ultimate filter. Number one, like here's some practical advice and then we'll get into scripture. Number one, um, receive counsel from godly people who you know their fruit, you know their theology, you know their love for God. Um, Number two, consider the end result of that word, what that word would mean, what that word would accomplish, how that word would benefit and instruct and strengthen the body. Um, Number three, um, consider how that practically affects your view of God. Um, Like there's always a trajectory that an idea or a word is carrying someone. So if this word or vision was for me or this, 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 this idea that I believe God is telling me to do something, consider the end result of that, the trajectory of that word. Is that word going to bring me away from God or closer to God? Um, think about the effect it has on your view of God. Right? Does it promote more of a love and a reverence and, a, and an appreciation and a wonder for who he is? Or does it kind of exalt man and minimize God? If it does, it's probably not from God. Uh, The presence or lack of peace is where a lot of people kind of screw up. They discern through everything by, I I have a peace about this, or I lack peace about that. Um, That's not ultimate. I'll say that. Biblically, your, your sense of peace or that sense of I lack peace, that's not the ultimate determining factor in whether something is of God or not. There's a lot of things that God calls people to do uh, that they don't like. Seem to have like this. Ooh, I had this personal peace. Like this is it's actually a hard, difficult, even suffering thing to do. Lead them into persecution. So I don't think the presence or lack of, and you can still have a peace about that difficult thing you don't want to do. I get that, but I will say the presence or lack of peace is not ultimate, but it does play a role. That that is part of the equation. Okay. Does the word um, humble you and instill a, a holy fear of God and love in your heart for Him? And then I would do this practically after getting counsel and considering these things and weighing them. I would pray. I would directly ask God. I would fast and seek His clear direction um, while I'm considering these things and getting uh, direction from people. Later, Jess, thanks for coming, helping out moderate this. Beautiful community, which by the way, if you haven't joined the Discord church, get on it. Join our online community. We talked about testing prophecy. uh, First John four, it does say, um, test every spirit, don't believe every spirit, same idea. Um, And the criteria here specifically is what someone confesses about Christ. Um, That's very helpful in discerning. It's more of a general principle. Um, Jude chapter 1 verse 8, like we're actually warned and not only are we warned against these kinds of people, we're actually being warned not to be these kinds of people. False prophets who specifically rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. That's not a good description. That's not like a, a resume you present to someone who you're really trying to get a job with. You don't go, hey, You seem like a fantastic employer. Look at my resume. I defile the flesh, I reject authority, I blaspheme glorious ones, and I rely on my dreams. You want me or not? Relying on their dreams is part of the negative description. So, part of being discerning people, what not to do is don't rely on dreams as the ultimate source of direction. Don't rely on dreams and live off dreams. This is a small percentage, sometimes a larger percentage of how God speaks for certain individuals, but it's not ultimate. The problem is people make dreams or visions ultimate. And like I said, they have an unhealthy craving, a desire for like more dreams, more visions. Don't rely on that. Okay. Here's what to do. Like Here's practically some words of instruction. John 10, verse 3 through 5. It says, to him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, referring to the shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Did you catch that? The sheep hear his voice. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why? Why? And this isn't like, well, the shepherd's only leading them like this or in this capacity. Remember, God leads in a bunch of different ways, through his word, through, like we've talked about dreams, visions, prophetic words through people, um, instruction and counsel from godly people in our life. Um, he leads, I don't know, talked to Balaam with a donkey, talked, brought Elijah birds, there's just a, a multiplicity of ways God can lead and direct and even speak. So, um, the sheep following and knowing the voice is key. That's why. Your ability to recognize God's voice seems to be directly related to how well you know God. If you know God personally and grow in intimacy with Him, and you grow familiar with His character and His heart and His desires and His plan and His will and His word, when you grow in your intimacy and relationship with God, your ability to discern and recognize his voice grows as well. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd that they're following. The same is true for any person on the planet. The sheep know the voice that they're most familiar with because they follow that voice. So it's not just sitting at the feet of Jesus, praying, reading the Bible, fasting, just praising and worshiping him. It's also when you're not, when you're actually like, doing life and going to your job and doing the dishes and, and going on a walk and working out, you're actually following his ways while you do those things. And the more you do that, the more you'll be accustomed to his voice when he speaks in other different capacities. Because uh, I don't have my Bible around me, I left my Bible in my room, but when you grow in the clear, um, obvious revelation of God in his word like that's established that's divinely authoritative right so when you grow in a knowledge of God through his word you will begin to discern and recognize his voice in other ways that he's speaking Um, a stranger they won't follow but they flee they don't know the voice of strangers that word no doesn't just seem to be like oh they are they are educated on the voice or they are aware of the voice or they know about the voice this is like a a relationship intimacy the sheep have followed the shepherd long enough to know when he's speaking and when he's not and if it's a stranger they don't know that voice and they ignore it they don't follow it the problem is not a lot of believers can say this and that that's sad that's sad we need to change that he says, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Do you see the consistent theme in this passage? It's not just knowing his voice, it's knowing him, okay? Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. He's gonna talk about other sheep he brings, and they'll listen to his voice. So, guess what? You will listen to the voice of the good shepherd if you're really following him and also it'll be easier to follow him if you know him and recognize his voice easier okay so that's my i guess quick encouragement is yes yes um when it comes to discerning the voice of god it seems to be that that discernment that recognition that familiarity grows with relationship Now, just for someone who will push back and go, he's not saying you grow in your discernment of his voice and your ability to recognize his voice. I would suggest to you, Samuel, I'd suggest to you, Jeremiah, I'd suggest to you, um, I'm trying to think who else we talked about in this series. I can't remember, but I'll also just bring you to practical scriptures that tell us, yeah, your discernment can actually grow. And discernment is not this one dimensional idea where it's like right, wrong, wrong, it's also light, dark, life, death, God's voice, not his voice, right? Truth, falsehood. You can learn how to discern. Evil spirit, the spirit of God, you know, you can, you can discern. Hebrews 5, 14 literally tells us that solid food is for the mature. What's maturity? Well, we already talked about how it's the way you think, the way you process, your mentality, your mental framework does reveal your maturity. Maturity is about thinking how do you think because ultimately the thinking affects the life everyone's living out their thoughts right so if I can master and or not master but grow in my thought life and refine that and 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 grow and strengthen that well my life will follow and the thinking doesn't just happen with the brain it's processed through the heart the heart is the 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 control center of these things. The brain is just gonna be the do it, do it, do it, you know, Um, the reasoning, the logic, the conclusions, the, you know, critical thinking. That's more of the brain, the mind, and the heart is the operation center of the individual. Um, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. Trained, whoa. So you can actually, you can strengthen your discernment. You can train that, how? Well, by constant practice to distinguish good from evil and good from evil. is not just like one dimensional thing. Well, it's like, you know, something good, something bad. That can be a good voice versus a bad voice, a good spirit versus a bad spirit. This can be a good word versus a bad word, right? So distinguish good not word like F word, but like word in terms of, is this a word from God? So guess what you can actually strengthen and practice and train your discernment by actually like putting it to work. Okay. Romans twelve two actually tells us how, like more practically. It says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, that's not talking about discernment, is it though? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, that's not talking about his voice. How else does God relay his will to you without speaking to you? Now, of course, whether you go, well, the Bible is God's word. He's spoken it. Well, I don't know. I'll get counsel from godly people. Okay, you better hope that they're actually speaking from truth and from the spirit of God, and God is speaking through them to you. Ultimately, it's all going to be traced back to God. What we want to do, regardless of the medium, regardless of the method, What we want to learn how to do is recognize and discern what is the will of God and if that's indeed him speaking. So what is the will of God? It's good, acceptable, perfect. That's too general, too vague. Okay. Well, scripture gives us a clear, more detailed picture of that. Well, that's not personal enough to me. Like, do I move to Florida like me? Do I start a church? Do I tell her I feel you know all these different things that were like scripture doesn't speak directly to that just general wisdom to glean from and then that will help me figure something out but when it comes to the more specifics the will of God in your life okay is less about what you're occupied in and more than it is it let me say it like this okay the will of God is more about who you are and it's less about where you find yourself geographically in the world you know uh, Because God want me there, uh, that job, that could be, God might have a preference for that. He might. But it is more about who you are. Are you becoming like Jesus? You you can technically, we can all as believers, do everything um, that God has called us to wherever we find ourselves. Like in whatever environment, whatever culture, like I can grow in sanctification, I can know the heart of the Father, I can tell people about Christ, I can you know, all these different things. So, I digress. No matter what, my mind needs to be renewed. How? By the word of God, by the spirit of God, by relationship. And guess what? As my mind is renewed, my ability to test and discern and reason through what is the will of God in this situation, a.k.a. is God speaking to me or is that not him speaking? That's part of it. You begin to do that when your mind is renewed. So you can grow in your ability to discern and recognize, not just the will of God, but the voice of God, okay? Ephesians 4, chapter 17, verse 18, to verse 18. It says, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. Don't be like them. They're darkened in their understanding, okay? They're darkened in their understanding. Contrasted with the Gentile unbelievers is chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, don't become partners with them, the Gentiles, whose minds are unfruitful, futile, useless, vain. Their understanding is darkened. At one time you were darkness, now you're light. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And guess what? Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That sounds like Romans 12. Let your mind be renewed right? So that you can test what is the will of God. Now in this specific occurrence, it's try to discern, try. That seems like there's actually an effort on my end. Like there's conscious effort. I'm willing to try. I'm attempting to figure it out. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That involves your mind. That involves your reasoning and thinking and it, you'll be more likely to arrive at a clearer picture and an answer when your mind has been renewed when you've grown familiar with the voice of God when the word of God has sanctified you and transformed the way you think and revealed to you his character so that you can recognize if and when he's speaking and have more of a success in doing that whether you have a dream or a vision or there's a sense that God is telling me to go to that person at the bank and tell them this you know that actually happens, that literally happens. And we're gonna get into like, does God ever lead through our senses or suspicions? Okay. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 17, you go on. Don't be foolish, understand what the will of the Lord is. Understanding is done with the mind, mm, not the brain, but the mind and the brain kind of together, right? I think I reason, but my ultimately my heart or my mind, the the, the faculty of my being, has to be transformed by Christ. So that when I'm reasoning with my brain and thinking and deciding and concluding, right? I'm actually doing those things accurately through the truth. And I can have more of a success in understanding what the will of God is in recognizing his voice. So those are just some practical, at the end of the day, it's like, well, how do I discern? Know God well enough to discern his voice. That's it. And you're like, it's not that simple. It is. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Paul gets a vision of a man in Macedonia, because he's, he's, he's been stopped a few times, right? He's kind of frustrated. You, you can imagine, at least, he's kind of frustrated. Um, he's been stopped from going into Asia by the Spirit. Uh, he's been stopped, he, he was prevented by the Spirit uh, from going into Bithynia. He's a man. All of a sudden, he gets a vision in the night, a man of Macedonia saying, hey, come here, bye buddy. And when Paul saw the vision, they went to Macedonia. Why? He concluded that God called them to preach the gospel to those in Macedonia. The question becomes, did God tell him to preach the gospel in Macedonia? Or was it just kind of, could potentially Paul have said, you know what, this was just a random occurrence of just me thinking about a person in Macedonia. It doesn't mean we're supposed to go. That's what some of us do. Like you actually miss out on God speaking to you because you chalk it up to, well, that was just something I watched on TV or that's just because I ate bad food or that's just because I'm tired and not thinking correctly and I'm seeing stuff. You know, you're you you, you just, you're closed off to prophecy. You're closed off to experiencing God in this capacity. And he's speaking. You're just not listening. You know, Paul could have been like, You know what? I don't don't think it's God. Because it didn't say, hey, go preach. Now, this is pretty clear. Come to Macedonia and help us. The question becomes, how does Paul know that vision is actually God bleeding? Well, he has to conclude that God's calling them to preach there. So there's a vision. There's a sense or uh, a suspicion that, hmm, There's a man telling me to come to Macedonia. That's not God saying it. That's not an angel. That's just a man. Come to Macedonia. That's kind of random. We have all kinds of different visions like that all the time. So not every vision is of God, but in this scenario, okay, how, how did Paul know? He had to conclude. He had to reason through these things and think critically and really assess. There was an, and in other words, there was, his mind and his brain were involved in the decision to act on this dream or this vision. Will that not happen at all to any of us? Come on, come on man, don't mess with me. Okay. Speaking of Paul concluding and you know, deciding, you know what, I, I believe God's calling us to preach. Does God ever lead us through or speak to us through uh, our suspicions, uh, our, our feelings, our emotions, our sensitivities, our thoughts and desires? Does God ever use these things to speak to us and guide us? Now, what I'm not saying is, are these things ultimate? No, they're not. I'm not saying, you know what? Live by your feelings. Let your heart guide you. Let your emotions drive your life. Let every decision you make be made out of your suspicion. No. But does God ever work with these things and use these things? If the desires of my heart can start to conform to the Word of God, if my own thoughts and my way of thinking can conform to the, the Word of God, uh, why, could my, why couldn't my, my, the feelings and emotions I feel as well as the suspicions and sensitivities I have, why couldn't those also be more conformed to the word of God as I grow in sanctification. Well, 1 Samuel 13, I'll just kind of spell it out for you. You have a man named Jonathan, the son of Saul, who's a coward, waiting back, not making any move. They're in the middle of a war. Um, kind of boring. And um, is it First Samuel 13? Bummer. Hold on, I think it it was 12. Don't look at the screen, you'll get sick. You'll throw up all over your phone. You guys know the story. There's a picture of a circus that I printed for my daughter. Uh, uh, Let's say Jonathan uh, attacks Garrison. Bible verse, ah, it is 13. Why didn't I see it? No, there's another one. I'm gonna find it. 14. Yes, thank you Lord. Okay, First Samuel 14. I just wanna show you the text so you're not like, He's making it up. No, Jonathan actually does this. Um, uh, they're essentially at war with uh, the Philistines. Uh, Saul ain't doing anything. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king, is going, man, he talks to his, his young man, his armor bearer, and Jonathan goes, hey, let's go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. So there's an idea he has. There's a There's a... There's a desire to go and just get moving and do something. Now watch. It may be the Lord will work for us. Maybe. Jonathan, do you have faith, brother? Like God's either going to work it out or he won't. God's either telling you to do this and it's absolutely clear or he's not. Maybe it's not that clear cut and dry. Maybe it's not that black and white. So Jonathan has this. I don't know if you'd call it a feeling or a suspicion, but at least a desire. And he, he has this, well, I will say this. He does, he does know God can, but he has a feeling that God will. Does that make sense? Like it may be the Lord will work for us. There's that suspicion that's rooted in scripture, of course, but the word of God, what Jonathan knows about God in the Torah informs his suspicions about a decision he's thinking about making. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us by many or by few. So he knows God can. He's unstoppable. He just doesn't know if God will, right? His armor bearer said, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish, I'm with you. Then Jonathan said, well, let's cross over to the men. We'll show ourselves if they say to us. Now, hold on. Jonathan's about to put some conditions on the word. In other words, he's about to decide on his own how god will clarify if he's with jonathan jonathan kind of set up these conditions for god to meet it doesn't say god told jonathan hey jonathan if they say this i'm with you if they don't you on your own baby doesn't say that if they say to us this is jonathan deciding the conditions for god to meet not presumptuously not arrogantly wait until we come to you then we'll stand in our place and And we won't go up to them if they say that, if they say that. But if they say, come up to us, then we'll go up. The Lord has given them into our hand, this shall be the sign to us. So they go there, right? And guess what happens? The Philistines say, come up to us. Jonathan goes, he looks at his armor bearer, God's with us. Let's go. And they go forward and they wipe out that that garrison. And then Saul goes, what is happening over there? Where's Jonathan? Jonathan? Oh my, that boy. And they end up going. Jonathan initiates the victory. He sets in motion the victory Israel's is about to experience over the Philistines. Now hold on. Did did Jonathan get a word? It doesn't say that. Did, did God tell Jonathan, I'm with you, if? No. This seems to be the kind of idea we see Gideon use. when he's like, God, if you're really going to do this, I'm going to lay out this fleece. If it's wet in the morning and the ground around it is dry, cool. God does it. And Gideon goes, okay, hold on. Can you make the fleece dry? I know it's the, I should have believed the first time. Make the fleece dry and the ground around it wet. God does that. Okay, you're with us. God didn't say that he, he didn't like set up the conditions of that. But guess what God is gracious to do? He's really gracious to work with a genuine heart that is seeking direction and desiring to know what is the will of God, Lord, if you would please, like I'm just asking, if you're with me in this, would you let it work out like this? If you're not, let it work out like this. I've made so many of those prayers. So many of those prayers. And sometimes God doesn't actually meet it. That's fine. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. I'm just making a request. I'm not saying you better do this or not, and if you don't, then I, you know, I'm just laying out some conditions that I can clearly recognize what you want from me. God is willing to answer that, and he has a lot of times in my life. Well, if this happens, then I'll, I'll give this, and if this doesn't happen, then I'll kind of... That That's how we moved to Florida. That's how we started this online ministry. That's how we've made decisions moving forward. It's not always clear-cut, like God for sure said, sometimes it's, God, here are some conditions I'm asking you to meet. Like Gideon, would you meet these conditions that you didn't say I, you had to and you, you didn't need to, but I'm just asking, would you? Would you? And sometimes God is gracious to come through and go, yeah, because he knows that's the way to direct you. If he doesn't, there's a better way to clarify that he's gonna use. There's another way he'll direct you. But notice, this originates in the heart of Jonathan. There's this view in Christianity that says everything that originates from the unregenerate human heart is just absolutely wicked. Um, Jonathan, yes, is a follower of the God of Israel. Uh, we don't know how dedicated he is. He's dedicated to David. Uh, he gives up his throne to David. Um, but Jonathan, he doesn't necessarily have like the new covenant, regenerated, uh, new creation kind of heart. Right? He's still working with that flesh. He's still working with... And guess what? Out of that heart comes a desire, a suspicion that if we go there, God could come through. Here's how we'll figure out if he's really with us. And God goes, he honors that. Okay. In Second Kings chapter 12. So did God work through that? Did God honor that? Did God bless them with victory through Jonathan's initial suspicion or feeling that God would do something if they moved yeah yeah he did and God seems to be behind that because anything that God does even through people the idea didn't just originate in Jonathan's heart you know I would say like if it did ultimately it was God leading and sovereignly overseeing that and even allowing that to come to pass I'm not a Calvinist so don't say I am second kings twelve, four, and five, Jehoash says to the priests, "This is Joash, he's repairing the temple, all the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord. Take that uh, each from the donor and repair the house." A very similar thing happens in Exodus 35. This is on a smaller scale. They're repairing the temple um, of Solomon. And it says that people's hearts would prompt them to bring money. There's this desire, feeling, that they should bring money to the temple. Now, of course, that's clear in Scripture, that the people of God should support the work of the temple. right? But in Exodus 35, particularly... The tabernacle's getting erected, they're assembling all the people, getting all the materials, getting all the people who can serve. Here's what it says, okay? And they came. These are not people who were forced or commanded to bring anything. God tells Moses, the people who will come and bring stuff, those are the people that you'll take stuff from. The people who are willingly desiring to do this of their own initiative, okay? And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him. So, there's something still good in the spirit of a person. Or you might, you know, synonymously use the term heart of a person. Not good enough to, like, give us merit and righteousness in the sight of God, because we're still sinners, without Christ. That's why Jesus gives us a new spirit, a new heart, a new nature. Because these things, while uh, while they are corrupt, while they are imperfect, they're not entirely, absolutely depraved and incapable of nothing good. That's why I don't hold to the Calvinistic teaching of, at least their understanding of uh, the depravity of man. Um, everyone whose heart stirred him. I want you to notice that. This is pre-New Covenant. Everyone whose spirit moved him. This is pre-New Covenant, before the new heart transplant. They brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting for all its service. So they came, men and women, all who were of a willing heart. Okay. Now, did this idea originate in their minds? No. Um, It seems as though that um, Moses makes the announcement. Let every skillful craftsman come. Make all that the Lord commands. Uh, People come. And all of the congregation, uh, where is it? Uh, Moses said to the congregation, "This is the thing God has commanded: take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, whoever wants to, right? Thank you, Stephen, for that donation. But whoever is generous, not just in workers and skills, but in materials and resources. And so, not everyone responded to the call, but the people that did, their heart stirred them, their spirit moved them. That's they brought what they could. They brought a contribution." Um, Acts chapter 15 verse 19 is another kind of example. Uh, you know, the apostles are gathering, trying to figure out well how much of the Torah and our ceremonial and dietary and and the laws we have, how much of that for the Gentiles. I've already done an episode on this. Go watch my series on the law. I did my best, and I stand by everything I said. I'm not convinced otherwise. So they're assessing the disciples, apostolic authority, trying to figure out what do we do with the Gentiles and the law? Okay. Peter goes, Hey, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Uh, this is either Peter or James. I don't remember, but let's write to them, you know what to do. And then in verse 22, uh, this, there, there's, there's an agreement now. So not only is it, Hey, Peter has this, uh, it seems good to him. Well, now it seems good to the apostles. So it started with Peter and now it's spread to the apostles and they're in agreement, but it started with this seeming in the heart of Peter or James, whoever was speaking there. Then verse 28, it says, it has seemed good. Does it sound like they're absolutely 100% um, undeniably convinced God spoke? No, they've weighed. It seems like they've discerned, they've reasoned, they've, they've thought, they've prayed, they've sought counsel. From the spirit and it seems good to the spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements Now I've just given you a few examples um, uh, Of how God does speak through um, and even guide us through and lead us by um, Some senses and feelings we have and, and sometimes our emotions and suspicions and sensitivities and thoughts and desires we have while those things aren't ultimate And while they're not always aligned with God's word, they're not always correct. Sometimes God, when we're actually positioning ourselves to be led by God and we're following him faithfully, we're more likely to have feelings, emotions, desires, sensitivities, suspicions that are aligned with his word. It makes it easier to follow, follow God. Okay, I know we've spent quite a bit of time. Um, Let me know in the chat if this is worth touching on, okay? I was going to talk about, but we're kind of pressed for time now. Let me know if you want me to still talk about this. Does prophecy have any connection to music and praise and worship? I was going to touch on that, but if if that's not going to be of value to you guys, let me know in the chat. If you don't care, let me, like, honestly, I don't care. I don't care if you say, I don't really care about that. But let me know in the chat if you're like, oh, yes, please touch on that. Please um, let me know in the chat. And while you guys are letting me know. I'm going to give you some final instructions on prophecy, okay? Whether you're giving a prophetic word, receiving a prophetic word, a dream, a vision, discerning whether God is talking to you. Remember, okay, the vagueness of a word matters. Vague words that are general enough to mean anything and apply to anyone, those words amount to nothing. Let me give you a good example because some of y'all are going to hate this. Um... Let's just say I get a prophetic word um, that, I don't know, this year the church is going to um, take it seriously. This year the church is going to take it seriously. While that could be a legitimate thing that happens, okay? The problem with it is that it's too vague and too general to really measure. Every time in scripture a prophetic word is given, there's clear direction, whether over time or immediately or, you know, there's going to be a clear instruction on what to do or some action to take. It's not vague, right? every prophetic word in scripture I've found, you can it's measurable, you can actually test it over time. Maybe after years, here's a timetable, or, or it's measurable, yeah, that really happened. And you can actually evaluate whether a prophetic word comes to pass or not. In other words, a prophetic word, a dream, a vision, um, with an interpretation, will always be clear enough to mean something specifically, and apply to someone specifically whether it's a group, whether it's a person, whether it's a congregation or a community or a nation. Some words are national. Some words are individual, congregational, okay? But when it comes to prophecy, if it's vague, amounts to nothing, gives no clear instruction, like, in other words, if this word was given, was not given, nothing would change. And if this word is given, nothing nothing changes. If that's the case, it's not likely gonna be from God, even if you say, even if you say, well, this is from God, even, let's just say it is. Um, if it amounts to nothing, benefits no one, gives no clear instruction, bro, I'm just, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, what does it do? Like you can do this right now. Go on YouTube and search for prophecy 2023. Okay, search for prophetic words for the church. While you're listening to hours and hours of prophecy, ask yourself this. Does any of this do anything practically for the church? Does it change anything practically? Is there clear direction? Is there clear instruction? Or does this amount to nothing? What good does it benefit the church to know this, to have this? What does it accomplish? If a word accomplishes nothing, and it's so vague or general that anyone can, it's probably not from God. Because God's not going to give. We've already talked about this. The second thing I'll say is prophecy is different than just observing something. You and I can observe the natural trajectory of where our nation is going. I'm in America, okay? There's a, it's, there's a very clear sense of how things are going. Financially, politically, uh, nationally, as a people, morally. It's not hard to tell the trajectory of the overall nation, okay? When a prophecy is given and you're like, "I have a thus say the it, Lord, it's from God." And it's just an observation or you just exercised critical thinking and you came to an educated conclusion about something, that's not a prophetic word. That's not unveiling mysteries. That's not revealing secret things. That's not addressing the the personal or congregational or national secrets of a That's easy to tell. If you watch the news long enough, you can figure it out. So prophecy reveals mysteries and speaks to the hidden secrets, whether of a person, a congregation, a nation, uh, a group, okay? What's natural or obvious or can be detected by the unbelieving mind, that's just an observation. It's not a prophecy. If you go and watch prophecies for 2023, you're gonna hear a lot of observation with God's name attached to it. Well, that's not a prophetic word. That's just you thinking and using your mind and reasoning through things, All right? So, uh, seems like you guys care about worship and praise as it relates to prophecy. So let me say this. A lot of the prophets and a lot of the seers, remember seers are the prophets that specifically specialize in seeing visions, okay? A lot of the prophets and seers in the Old Testament actually influenced the worship, the songs, and the praise, and the methodology of God's worship, or uh, the the way people worship God, the nation of Israel. A lot of prophecy is actually poetic in the Old Testament. In other words, it's uh, showing the close connection between music and prophecy. Um, It's rhythmic, it's poetic, it's, it's something to be sung, um, it's something to be declared. That's a lot of prophecy. But prophets or seers played a big role in kind of forming, um, and, and even David, forming the methodology of the way God's people worshipped or the songs they sang or the choir masters and the choir that that, that that kind of lead and facilitate that. They played a role in that. So know that up front, okay? i take you to 1 Corinthians 25 or 1 Chronicles 25. Uh, stick around to the end and I'll, I'll share some of my personal experience with visions to to, to kind of cap this off and go that's why I didn't give any at all of my personal stories yet I saved that for the end so that you have a holistic view of prophecy therefore I can share my personal experiences with prophecy and then you can weigh that and hopefully glean something from it but I don't want our understanding of prophecy to be purely based off personal anecdotes where it's like I'm building a theology on my experience Mm, don't do that but I'm just going to affirm what scripture says with my experiences. Not that it needs to be validated. But it it might help you guys think through this a little clearer. First Chronicles 25. David and chief, the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph, of Haman, of Jedethon. Now, if you read the Old Testament, Asaph is a seer. Haman is a seer. Jedethon is a seer. Um, these are actual, uh, prophets who specialize in visions. Okay. Um, and I'll show you, I'll, I'll I'll like clearly verify the scripture. Each of these names being seers, they prophesied with liars. So David, the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service, the sons of Asaph. So now we're talking about the children of these three seers. They, the children are prophesying with what? With liars, with harps, with symbols. Okay. When, when Samuel meets Saul and he goes, hey, God's about to change you. You're going to be a king on your way back home. You're going to come across a band of prophets. They're going to be playing music. This is the same idea. They're prophesying with musical instruments. The list of those who did the work of their, and of their duties was of the sons of Asaph. He'll go on to talk about, they prophesied under the direction of the king. Kings, starting with Saul, seem to gather around themselves uh, prophetic musicians. Starting with Saul. David seems to be kind of the first. Of Jedithan, right, under the direction of their father Jedithan, who prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. So Jedithan is said to be prophesying with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to God. Is the thanksgiving and the praise prophecy itself? Or is the prophecy being given with the instruments uh, coming from a heart of thanksgiving and praise? All these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer. So Haman is the king's seer, okay? According to the promise of God to exalt him, God had given Haman 14 sons, three daughters. They were all under the direction of their father in the music. In the house of the Lord, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, for what? For the service of the house of God. I've never understood, like personally, I've never understood why churches have um, choirs, instruments at all, worship. Like it, I just I didn't really understand. Um, never thought about it until this study. Like I really see the biblical basis for singing and declaring the praise of God prophetically with instruments, um, maybe not always prophetically, I don't think all music is always prophetic in nature, um, but to sing to the Lord, to declare praises and thanksgiving and worship Him. Um, I believe that can, at times, uh, be prophetic. Because here we see Second Chronicles twenty nine thirty. I have such a high regard for worship already without understanding it as in scripture. Um, so now you can you can imagine how much I love and cherish and value this idea of people leading worship and declaring the praises of God among his people. Hezekiah the king and the officials. Here Asaph is the seer. Okay. So we saw that Haman is a seer. Asaph is a seer. Um, um, and then Nehemiah 12.46 tells us Asaph, uh, for long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers' songs of praise and thanksgiving to God connected to David and Asaph. Now, what we haven't established is this guy named Jedithon. Is he a seer? Because those three guys, Asaph, Haman, and Jedithon, are over the, the praise, the worship, the instruments, the choir. In other words, like the singing instrument portion of the service, they're over that. Second Chronicles 35, 15, the singers, the sons of Asaph were in their place according to the command of David, Asaph, Haman, and Jedithan, the king's seer. Jedithan's a seer, a visionary prophet, Haman, Asaph, visionary prophet, what are they leading? They're leading the worship service, they're leading the music, they're leading the instruments, they're leading the the musicians. Um, They're even, the Psalms are not only prophetic in nature, but also, you know, uh, poetic. Uh, the psalms are to be sung. They're also, you know, the psalmist's personal prayer journal. There are songs unto God at times. 1 uh, Chronicles 25, 5, all these were the sons of Haman, King Seir. We read that. Um, this is an interesting story. This right here is interesting. Now again, I'm just going to say there's a connection. Uh, I don't know how deep the connection goes. Is music unto God? always prophetic is there a reason that prophets were overseeing the music and the instruments and the declaring praise to God is there a reason for that Um, I think I'm just reasoning through this real time right now if I wanted someone to lead God's people in praise and to declare right things about him and to say things that honor his name and exalt his name I would I would want people who are trusted voices that hear the word of God, that know the word of God, that walk in the word of God, that are trusted, reliable, proven themselves, and I know that they will lead the people in incorrect in praise. That's personally what I would want. I wouldn't be so casual about throwing someone up there. Well, they got a gift. Having a gift ain't the same thing as being able to lead God's people in worship. Uh, 2 Kings 3, 14 through 20. This is weird, okay? Um... Here we have uh, the king of Israel and the the king uh, of Judah, Jehoshaphat. Um, They're wondering if they should go, right here. um, Jehoshaphat is like, uh, the king of Israel, uh, no water, the king of Israel, Last the Lord has called these three kings, Joseph is a prophet. Okay, these two kings are wanting to inquire of God for direction on what to do with the king of Edom, who's come against them, okay? They come to Elisha, and he goes, what do you want? To, what do you want? Go to the prophets of your father, you weenies, because they worship false gods. It doesn't say weenies, I added that, just for emphasis. The king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, um, or actually, and the king of, yeah, king sorry, king of Edom is with the king of Israel and the king of Judah. They're all going against Moab, okay? And they're afraid that Moab's going to overtake them. Elisha said, hmm, you're lucky Jehoshaphat's here. Otherwise, I wouldn't even give you the time of day. Now watch what Elisha, the prophet, says. This only happens one time. I can't think of any other time Elisha or any prophet asks for this. Every other time they prophesy without music. But Elisha goes, hmm, bring me a musician. When the musician played, The hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And then he'll give the prophecy of what's to come. That essentially they're going to beat Moab. Now, why did Elisha need a musician? Did he need a a musician? Did God tell him, call a musician? Or did Elisha just sense a musician would be helpful? What's going on here? I don't know. I really don't know. It's a one-time occurrence, but when you connect it to the other ideas that the Psalms are prophetic, that the, um, uh, which are songs of praise, which are songs of you know, remorse or godly complaint or a prayer journal, or whether you look at the Old Testament prophets that are mainly poetic in nature and can actually be sung and were sung. Um, and when you start to pair like the three main people over the musical portion of, of serving and praising God, those three men were prophets, seers. You you really start to wonder, hmm, how much connection does prophecy have with music? And I don't know if I can give an answer. I just know there's a connection there. Okay, a connection that God has established. Second Samuel twenty-three one through two. These are the last words of David, um, the psalmist of Israel. I love that he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. Sounds like an introduction to a radio show. Welcome to to Sweet Psalms of David. This is your host, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, David says, his last words. His word is on my tongue. So David admits, as the psalmist of Israel, whom a lot of the psalms are attributed to, um, the Spirit of God was speaking by him. David is referred to as a prophet. He also danced. Mm -hmm. He danced, he sung, he played music. And those songs recorded in the Psalms that are sung are prophetic. They're led by the Spirit. He's called a prophet. The Spirit speaks through him. There's one last verse worth considering. 1 Samuel 16, 23. Now, there's no way to deny the connection between prophecy and music. I just have yet to figure out what that is. Particularly, 1 Samuel 16, 23, Saul gets a harmful spirit. And David is sent, actually, he's recommended by one of Saul's servants. And Saul is like, ah, this evil spirit. And then one of Saul's servants goes, actually, there's a guy who can play some sick guitar. Plays the harp. And we should call him. They call him. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, jammed, played it with his hand, and Saul was refreshed. He was well. Guess what happens when David played the lyre? The harmful spirit left. Now, it doesn't say David did not sing. It just doesn't record the fact, if David did sing, that that he sung. So maybe, maybe you can imagine David declaring praise, declaring worship and the harmful spirit leaves. But if it's just the musical instrument and David as a prophet who sings, who praises, who writes down his own personal thoughts in his personal prayer journal and it's often poetic and prophetic, David, that same David, is playing the lyre, and an evil spirit leaves Saul when he does. God has ordained that to happen. What else can God accomplish and what does he do through prophetic music? Music that is godly, led by the truth and the spirit. Um, John says the Hebrew word used for playing actually includes singing with it. So yeah, even, even if he's singing, there you go. That, that lends credence to the fact that singing praise um, to God has a prophetic element to it. And what that means, I don't know. But is there a connection between prophecy and music? Yes.